despite everything that's happened, not just in the last 15 years, but in the last 100 years, despite all the you know, incredible achievements that women have made, despite the huge leaps forward in female education, despite all the sort of blurring of gender lines, that good girl narrative continues to be played out in marketing, often in the most sneaky and surreptitious ways. What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Jane Cunningham and Philippa Roberts today. Jane and Philippa worked for many years in advertising agencies, DDB and Ogilvy. They were boss people as well, by the way. 15 years ago, they left their jobs. Hello, 2021 and everybody who's left jobs this year to write their first book about marketing to women. They've written two further books since. They've been researching female audiences ever since as well. Brandsplaining, their latest book, is a data-led I just skipped over the word data because there are three ways to say it. Data, data, data. It always throws me. Is a data-led analysis of marketing to women and how much it has progressed or not? Their answer is that despite some evident forward movement, marketing is in fact more often than not sexist. Jane and Philippa, welcome. Hello. Thank you. How did you two find each other in the world? We started, uh, it was a very long time ago, wasn't it, Phil? We started work together at BMP. Well, DDB now. DDB now. BMP then. Was that 1992? It was a long time ago. Um, So we worked together on lots of different brands there and then subsequently worked together at Ogilvy as client services director and planning director. So we worked together forever, really. Oh, wow. Did you ever consider formalizing your relationship in any other way other than through a business? Uh, what what did what? you have in mind, Mark? <laughs> no, was, what, did, what did you have in mind? Before we get into the serious topic, that's like quite a relationship, right? It is. How did you know that the other was the one? Well, we've we've always been always been really really good friends. I suppose because for all our time at DDB, we work really closely together, so we kind of knew, you know, we knew how each other worked, and we knew the things that each other was good at. And I think we really, A, we really, really like each other and we know each other so well that, you know, it's not one of those relationships where you have to be all politic about things. You just just say, and that makes it all really straightforward. And we, and also we have such a nice time doing it as well. So Mm -hmm. it it feels like it's a pleasure. It's a beautiful thing. Hats off to you. (laughs) You you both climbed up to pretty big titles and then you climbed out. What was the best thing about having a big title? really liked I mean I liked working in agencies I really liked working with younger people as well I suppose I really enjoyed kind of teams of people coming up you know who kind of started out graduates really enjoyed working with people who were very new to the industry and it was great fun managing a team of planners I mean I really like planners as company (laughs) they're nice people they're fun to be around very smart and so it was it was a real pleasure running a department it also meant that you didn't get to do the work. You spent most of your time managing people and much less time doing the actual work. And so getting out was partly about doing that and then partly about, I guess, doing what we chose to do, which was take a very specific angle on the job, which was to look specifically at female audiences. So I don't know. I thought it was really good fun working in agencies. I would recommend it highly. Mm-hmm. Philippa, best thing about Big Title? It's really lovely, isn't it, when you're working in an agency that's really working and, you know, you feel like you're making a difference to brands and making a difference to, you know, the people who are working in 
in the agency and it feels like it's on a roll and it's creating impact and making change and happen and you know all that stuff feels very fruitful and positive doesn't it when it when it's all working and then there are also places that get can get incredibly well as you know they can get so bogged down in themselves bogged down in their kind of ways of doing things so brilliant to be out of the bogged downness as well as and being able to do our own thing in a bit of a lighter way I think Okay. Final warm-up question, although probably a very important question, especially considering the era that we're in with a lot of people, well, leaving their jobs. You know, there's the so-called great resignation. A lot of people are burnt out, frustrated, want more freedom, more agency in their life, not advertising agency, but more personal authority in their lives. How did you plot your escape plan? Well, we I mean, we'd been commissioned to write a book before we left our job. So we had in our minds that we wanted to write a book about marketing to women and that we wanted to properly research the subject and understand it better. So we were commissioned to write that when we were still working in our jobs. We were slightly planning on thinking and thinking of leaving anyway. So when we got the book deal, we just said, right, let's do that. Let's leave and do that. And then we set up the research practice on the back of it. So Oh, I mean, you know, plotting would be too sort of um, conscious a word for it, really. You know, like all these things, they sort of happen serendipitously. But yeah, I guess the catalyst was was the book deal. Yeah, but I think there's something really important about that, that, you know, we could minimize, launch a thing and then launch another thing and then launch another thing. And then all of a sudden you've got a business and you've been you're doing it for like 15 years. That's kind of how it happens. And I think a lot of a lot of planners especially can get not going to say anything interesting here. You can't get stuck in their heads and they're worried about, is, is it the right time? Am I the person to do it? I'm too shy. Sometimes you just got to launch a thing and the energy will start to happen. That is so true. And actually, if we could have sat and thought about it literally for years, and it was just the book that catalyzed it, as Jane says. And then the other thing that happens is, as you say, it doesn't, it doesn't work out as you thought it was going to, you know, you have your the idea and you take it out to the market, don't you? And then the, you know, the market responds in a certain way. And I think we thought when we were setting out that we'd do loads of consultancy and that we would working, I, I guess, much more with brands that were used to talking to women, you know, like health and beauty and fashion and those sort of brands. But in fact, then our business actually started to come from really unexpected places and, and actually from often from brands that were really steeped in masculine categories and, you know, were very unused to talking about women. And they had this sort of big need that emerged. So we just sort of followed that lead because it was really fascinating and really interesting. But it wasn't kind of where we had plotted things would end up. Mm -hmm. I love asking really basic and I mean basic questions to people who think a lot for a living so I'm going to give you one to get us started as we venture into the topic of marketing to female audiences in the 15 years that you've been researching women talking to women what's the biggest change you've observed biggest change in women or biggest change in the market yes you choose <laughs> if you had to give it all up today just had a moment of reflection glass of wine in hand you're like wow this thing really did change in the past 15 years what's this thing well I think when we when we started the business the market was completely had no idea why we were doing it or what it was that we were trying to do and even the idea of having a specialism in understanding women was 
just sort of people were completely sort of blank faced really when we conceived of the idea. So we spent a lot of time knocking on doors and making phone calls and getting no response. And then I think it was probably we did some work for the Conservative Party that got quite a lot of publicity and suddenly people's interest was piqued in what it, what it was that we might be up to. And I suppose over the last 15 years, that's something that has really changed. The idea that women as an audience do require special understanding and that they're not just versions of men, that they might have some experiences, life experiences, needs, motivations, which are different. And then I guess in women, the the huge change has been, I guess, precipitated by social media and the fact that women's voices have become so much more present, so much more outspoken. The male editorship of female voices has been disintermediated by social media. And so for women, kind of women's voices and their presence in culture and therefore in marketing and the confidence that women have now to properly call out what they see as diminishing behavior by brands and by marketing, that that has, that feels like it has really changed. And that's across all age groups. It's not just a sort of Gen Z thing. It's, you know, we do a lot of research with women in their eighties, you know, seventies and eighties and the same, Mm -hmm. the same outspokenness, the same willingness to call it out. So Really, over the last 15 years, it's gone from almost nothing in terms of the the market kind of thinking that there's a need to understand women to now a very active interest in understanding women and seeing them as as an audience, not just as a version of men. And then in women, in the research that we do, a much greater outspokenness. Okay. Philippa? I think this might be the same answer, but I think when we, st- when we started off... The idea of feminism was quite a sort of rarefied idea, really, that basically sort of lived in in a sort of quite a liberal elite sort of place. And it wasn't a particularly engaging or appealing idea for lots of women. Do you remember that bit in Bridget Jones's diary where the mum says to her, no one likes a feminist, darling? And what has happened over the 15 years is that feminism has just has gone mainstream, properly mainstream, in that everyone from six-year-old girls all the way up to eight-year-old women, and in whatever kind of group that you talk to and wherever we talk to them, it is a really big and defining idea that comes up very quickly in conversations and women feel really enjoy engaging with and don't feel any longer that it's something that they have to step around or deny, which is, you know, often what was happening. Yeah, it, it feels like it's not a long time ago, 15 years, right? No. But it, it, it kind of really is. I, I remember being in, really in a meeting with a luxury car brand who was a client and in us back in Australia and they talked in this meeting about how the top salesperson in a particular state of Australia was female right? So that was a thing to discuss. Yeah. And that one of the reasons was that she talked to the female partner, which obviously assumes a certain point of view on relationship structures, but talked to the female partner to get the sale. And this was new information and mm. brought brought up in a serious meeting. That was 18 years ago. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, hey, here we are. What's the one thing that has not changed enough according to what people are telling you both. Philippa, you want to go first? Yeah, I think the thing that hasn't changed enough, and this is what we hear, you know, actually this was the catalyst for the for the for our latest 
book is that marketing hasn't you know the audience is ahead of marketing which is quite unusual thing to happen but you know in the book we talk about this good girl narrative which is a long story very short is that in a world where it's still mostly men who are mostly in charge for most of the time the cultural dynamic is to put women in a place where they need to be pleasing to men and that plays out in all sorts of ways it plays out in the you know the roles that they're expected to play from the sort of dear little adorable girl or to the hot teen to the sort of dating endlessly smiling perfect mom to then you know in in later life literally just disappearing off the scene those roles the personality that women are, are encouraged to have which is this sort of very you know passive supportive smiling kindly nurturing always agreeable personality you know and it's there in the workplace with with women however high they get up in organizations being the supportive one being the one who takes on most of the work always being good and that narrative of the good girl is is the absolute core of what kind of sexism is all about and marketing has been really responsible over the years for perpetuating those good girl narratives, not just perpetuating them, but playing them out and colouring them in and, you know, putting them up on bloody massive 48 sheets and saying this is how women should be. And despite everything that's happened, not just in the last 15 years, but in the last 100 years, despite all the, you know, incredible achievements that women have made, despite the huge leaps forward in female education, despite all the sort of blurring of gender lines, that good girl narrative continues to be played out in marketing, often in the most sneaky and surreptitious ways, but it's still there and it still hasn't moved enough and it's still behind where the audience is. Yeah, I I hear that, Jane. I want to get your answer, but I also want to point out to listeners, let me mansplain a little bit. And I know we've joked about this (laughs) because you've you've written a book called Brandsplaining. Men are always like, am I mansplaining? I get it. But like, I think it's really important to listen to a conversation like this without reacting to it. Because it's really easy, however you identify in the world, you could be like, well, that happened to me or, well, that happened to a friend of mine. And and it doesn't matter in this conversation. Like I, I would just encourage anyone just to, to listen to it without sort of throwing yourself into it, which is what we're all drawn to do. Because I was reading the Good Girl chapter and I was like, oh my God, I feel like I was good boyed. I'm not putting myself into this, okay? I get 10 seconds and then we're moving on. But I, I, I felt like you know, what did I want in life? What decisions am I allowed to make in life and all that kind of stuff? And I don't mean that in a disingenuous way, but that's not the right way to react to what you're saying. Although it is helpful to respond in that way because it means that there's some empathy there, you know, and the reality is that men, you know, boys and men are locked into their own stereotypes and their own cultural scripts that are imposed on them too. So provided the response isn't to deny the deny the experience yeah. of the good girl but to say yeah I, I i can understand that because we have our own boxes that we're sort of painted into sorry what was the question so then so jane the same question that i gave philippa what do you think has not changed enough and you can't have the same answer the thing that that very obviously hasn't changed enough i would say in the industry is not enough female creatives at a senior level and not enough female directors and so at the creative executional end of the 
communications process or marketing process, it feels like not enough progress has been made. And that's partly why things haven't moved on as quickly as they should have done and why the industry is behind the consumer. And I suppose the same would be true in large organizations, the vast majority of whom are led by men as well. So it's very difficult for marketing to move on when there's some really key and instrumental roles in the development of marketing, which Mm. are almost always occupied by men and young men and young men at that, which is an added complicating factor. The sort of youthful male lens on the female experience is very narrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we recorded, I mentioned how I just binge watched my way through sex education I feel, and I'm sure this is open to critique as well, but I feel like Netflix has probably been one of the few places where what we're talking about, you can tell there's been a lot of emphasis from Netflix on creating shows that are super diverse, right? In a really mm. relatively natural way. And I feel like like Netflix is kind of leading the way, at least in the world that I pay attention to. Can you think of any other either advertisers or content, I know it's a weak word, content creators that you think are beacons of change? Well, I think we'd agree that Netflix, I mean, TV generally has been far more progressive than film, partly because the film industry is so conservative and so dominated by men, whereas TV tends to have a slightly more sort of balanced profile. So, and it's not just Netflix, it's all kinds of programming. But that kind of shorter form program making feels really like it is much more progressive. I mean, from even old programs like Orange is the New, New Black, all of those kind of programs, which originally came to market quite a long time ago. Now you have programs featuring older women, you know, films featuring older women in music. It's it's the same. You know, you see Billie Eilish, you know, even Taylor Swift, you know, transforming from good girl to now pretty sort of independent, spirited feminist. You know, you've seen lots of transformations across popular culture, which suggests that there is a forward movement. I mean, it's not consistent. And like all of these things and feminism itself comes in waves, there are always backwards and forward steps, but it does feel like there is progressive movement. And certainly when you talk to younger women and younger men, their perspective and understanding of feminism and stereotypes and role models is much more sophisticated than ours would have been when we were of their age. Hmm. Philippa, does anything come to mind for you? In, in female sort of non-fiction, there's a lot of stuff as well, which is much more A, outspoken, but B, kind of examining the good girl narratives and the boxes that we're all put in. If you think about Invisible Women or Helen Lewis's Difficult Women or the Florence Givens work, there's a, a willingness to examine those stereotypes in a way that there probably, well, there certainly wasn't 15 years ago. Curious to hear what kinds of research projects you've been working on recently and then to to hear how you go about your research you know obviously you're going to keep things confidential that need to be kept confidential but could you give us a sense of a couple of the the asks that the clients are, are approaching you with right now yeah one of the kind of projects that we absolutely love are when a company recognizes that they have become self-orientated and that their understanding of female life has got really detached from the reality and it's all got a bit kind of metropolitan and actually quite sort of corporate feminist in the way in which the company is seeing the audience. And so our favourite sort of projects are ones where you 
we go and we're asked to really deep dive into the real lives of the audience, what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what their daily stresses and strains are, and to bring that understanding back into the business. And we really love those projects, A, because the companies that commission them are genuinely enlightened or want to be enlightened. And then we really love them because it's always such a brilliant and pleasurable and experience to go and talk to audiences just about what their what their lives are like, what they need from brands. <laughs> If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. Can you give me one example of something that you found through qualitative research this year that surprised you? Oh, good. Really good question. Thank you. I wanted to get one good question in. (laughs) (laughs) I think think one of the things that surprised us, we have been doing quite a lot of research with older women, so women in their kind of 70s. One of the things which shouldn't have surprised us, but you constantly get forced to, I guess, challenge your own sort of prejudices and ideas about age as much as anything, but just how incredibly independent, spirited and how positive the experience of ageing is for women, particularly once they get past the stage of having children in the house. Not that they don't love their children, of course they do, but that there is this sort of period of enlightenment being able to just do whatever you want on your own terms without having to consider anybody else. And it's sort of a constant surprise when we talk to those women and they express the joy of life in older life. Can I push you on that? Yeah. Like, how do you know it's real and, and that they're not just giving you a script that they think they need to give you? Because as you get older, you worry about not being useful and not feeling useful and not being useful can lead to some challenging life outcomes. So one might imagine that one would have to put themselves out into the world in a positive way so that people stay around them. No, you, know you, can, <laughs> you can feel it in the room. Okay. It's it's very real. How, how can you feel it? How? How do you know? How do you know? Well, it, I mean, I suppose because we talk to women across all life stages all the time, when we're talking to women in that in the sort of younger cohorts, you can feel the weight of other people's lives on their lives all the time and just how challenging it is to work their way through all of the transitions that you have to get to before you get to that stage where everybody leaves the home and you're sort of left to your own devices. And there is a a real sense of sort of lightness and freedom and the language that gets used. So we, we, we do this exercise, which we talk about in the book as well, where we ask women to describe their hope for selves, their feared selves and their actual selves. And in the younger cohorts, there's a much bigger gap between those selves. And the feared self is often darker and the hope for self is often much further away from the way that they actually are. Whereas in the older age group, the way they are is the way they want to be quite often and about as good as it gets. And so we use all sorts of techniques to get under the skin of whether people are telling us the truth or whether they're just sort of, you know, trying to tell us what we want to hear or how they want to project themselves out into the world. But it's undoubtedly the case that that 
for most of these women. And clearly when ill health comes into play or poverty, it's a very different picture. But for a lot of the women that we speak to, their their joy in their life stage is palpable. Yeah, my question was not with an opinion. It was trying to get to the experience of qualitative researchers where I really do believe there is this evolution from when you're starting out in research, even if you're doing qual research, unless you've really been trained, you're often doing qualitative research with a survey mindset, you know, like you've got to fill in the form. So, you mm. know, what are your fears in life? I'll just write it down. But over time, those kinds of answers, they fit in a massive set of data and experiences. And so for you to say you feel it in the room is totally appropriate. Just pointing it out because I just feel we've been so browbeaten by data in the past 10 years. That's what I was trying to get to. I wasn't trying to say, I wasn't trying to disagree with what you had found. Right? I was just trying to no, get into the qualitative no. research experience. And no, and I really appreciate the question because it is, it's one of the things that we feel has been really lost in the conversations that are had around marketing and around brands and around communications is that with the real overemphasis on data, you know, for lots of reasons, partly just because so much more has become possible in the last 10 years. But the overemphasis on data has meant that the insight and the ideas that come from insight have been sort of pushed to the side. And that's why the audience is so far ahead of businesses often is because they're concentrating on looking at what they're doing now and analysing and looking at the data rather than trying to feel where the audience is, which is what you do get from close and careful listening. Mm -hmm. And that, 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 um, you know, feeling it in the room, the feel is the operative word, isn't it? I mean, that is what qual is for. It's about the feeling and, and making sure that that is not just sort of seen, but properly heard. Yes. But then you know that a, a person newer to what we're doing in an environment that's not used to it might have that feeling and might have really interesting quotes. And then they run into this wall of needing a data-driven bulletproof insight. Be yeah. Like, Whoa. Can feel quite confusing for a very long time, possibly like a type of gaslighting. Let's talk a little bit more about the practical things that someone can do, especially when they're working on a let's say on a creative brief in an advertising agency. I know, I know you've talked about a couple of structural things, especially with needing more female leadership in business and in agencies and more female creative leadership as well and more female people who identify and, and present as females in, in creative roles, idea roles. Let's say a brief comes in and the balance of the team is okay. What can people do better to reflect what's actually going on out in the world, especially through the lens that you see it and, and the people that you talk to? I, t I tell you one thing that we think really does happen and it happens far too much and it happens to men, women, all genders is the impact really of corporate feminism, I suppose, on the way in which audiences get seen. You've kind of seen it over the over the pandemic, don't you? All about, you know, all the discussion about oh, what's the future of work and everyone's talking about should we return to an office or not? The reality is, most women aren't working in offices and most women don't live the same lives that people in marketing and agencies live. And that sort of corporate feminist narrative of, you know, women being able to make their own choices and to, you know, to having lots of choices and being able to make them is just so far away from a lot of the reality of most women's lives. So I think often it's about trying to put all that kind of stuff aside. And that's, I guess, what we're trying to do with our 
research often is to get everyone really, really close to the audience and what it feels to be them. Mm -hmm. Could you define corporate feminism again? Give give me some more words because I know you mentioned it earlier and it, it grabbed my attention. How do you? What is it? How do you recognise it? Well, I suppose it's it's the narrow discourse around feminism, which says that it's all about women in the workplace, and that if women can ascend through the ranks of corporations and shatter glass ceilings and get onto boards, that that has come to dominate so many definitions of feminism. And it's a tiny population of the women in the world. You know, most of the women in the world, for them, feminism is about sharing the load at home, being paid a fair wage, not having to do ridiculous hours, being paid very little. That That's much more the, the interest of the audiences that we speak to than it is about whether or not you're going to get, you know, onto a board or to make it to the top of a company, which most women will never, ever have that opportunity and lots of women don't want that opportunity. So does, does that mean that me asking you for like just practical advice other than talk to people when someone's working on a creative brief, is that just too simplistic a question because the structural issues are so immense? Yeah, this, I mean, the structural issues are huge, which is why there's sort of this notion. And it's one of the reasons we really object quite strongly to some of the stuff that you see in femvertising and fempowerment, you know, or even in some of the books that you read about what women should do to be successful in business, which says, you know, just leave it, lean in, be braver, be bolder, as if it's women's responsibility to change their personalities in order to somehow take on some pretty massive systemic endemic issues in the way that the world works. And it goes beyond business and into politics and everything else. So yes, I mean, it's a, it's unhelpful to think that telling women to change themselves is going to change things. And I think over the past probably five or six years, there's probably been an uptick in female empowerment creative briefs or marketing briefs, walking the halls of uh, marketing departments as well as agencies. And yeah. a lot of the ones that I've seen, there's not a lot in them, but it can be hard to point that out. Yeah. How do you deal with that that vague brief where a brand is wanting to launch something where the main message is like, we empower women, which is not to me very specific important but not very specific how do you navigate that kind of riddle you just have to have to get people to stop and think for a second have a look at that brief and just think how that might be received by a woman if you think that a brand is there to give power to women that it is either their responsibility or within their gift to give power to women which is clearly ludicrous but I mean it's also that that's not what brands are for brands are there to serve their customers and they're there to figure out what it is that they can do on their customers behalf usually please in their own market (laughs) you know so try and find something about what it is that you actually do and you have a, a competence at doing and do that on women's behalf rather than trying to occupy some sort of patron role where you're operating on behalf of women and empowering them. Brands can't empower women. Why is that? Well, because they don't have the power. They don't own the power. That It's their job to serve women, not to empower women. And women have power now and they don't need brands to empower them. They're, you know, the biggest audience in the world, the biggest commercial opportunity. It's it's patronizing. So let's assume that there has been an uptick in that kind of brief Th- and that kind has. of language. And, and yep, yeah, okay. Why do you think that's the case? Why does it stop there? 
that fempowerment or fempatizing, as it's horribly called. It's the marketing arm of corporate feminism. And it's that weird sort of mashup of the sort of neoliberal idea that the individual can achieve anything with the right amount of grit and determination and leaning into a situation. A mashup of that and feminism. And then fempowerment is the sort of, yeah, the marketing arm of that, which says, you audience, be braver, be bolder, strong is the new pretty. All that stuff is just, it's basically saying to women, that what you are is not enough. Instead of saying it, as you know, as brands used to say in the good girl era, you know, you need to be thinner, you need to be whiter, you need to wash whiter, you need to, you know, all those perfectionist narratives that used to play out around appearance. Now that the, the fempowerment communication is basically saying, now you need to change your attitude, you need to change your outlook, you need to change your mind, you need to look at this differently. And in so doing, it neatly sidesteps looking at the systemic things that are wrong in a category or in a market that are not serving women or casting women into secondary roles or not doing enough to, as Jane says, serve them. You know, brands that have done brilliant things under the, that sort of empowerment umbrella, but that shouldn't blind us to the reality of, of a lot of what is going on, which is oh, we'll do some fempowerment marketing and then everything else, we can just keep on business as usual. And that's pretty cynical in lots of instances. And it actually is becoming more and more cynical the more it goes on. Who's doing it well? The brands that we think are are, are targeting women well and are marketing to women well and are serving women well are the ones that, as Philippa describes, are looking at their categories and they're saying, what is it about these categories and the way that they operate that diminish women or that miss the point with women? And there are brands doing that. So you have brands like Freedom Mom and Mother and Baby Care, you know, where the perfectionist narrative around the maternal role has been so dominant for so long and so many women for so long. It's only really in the last kind of three or four years that women have felt able to step up and say, out loud that actually being a mother isn't necessarily absolutely brilliant all the time, you know. And for a long time, marketing has perpetuated this idea that if you're not living up to this perfectly happy, perfect mom all the time, then you are you are a failure. And brands like Freedom Mom are so honest about the reality of what it's like to be a mother, particularly of a tiny baby or a young baby, and how difficult that can be. And not only that, then also developing absolutely brilliant products to help soothe women and their physical bodies. And also by not making them feel like fa failure, soothing the anxieties that come with being a new mother. And then, you know, you have brands like Third Love in the underwear market, you know, taking on brands like Victoria's Secret, which again, for years have been selling women this notion of perfection, the angel, the good girl in the wedding lingerie, you know, saying actually underwear it isn't necessarily there just for the viewer it's also there for the wearer and it can be you know it needs to be comfortable and it needs to fit it can look great and it can make you feel sexy but it can it also needs to make you feel comfortable mm -hmm. you know Dove has done a great job in the beauty category by taking on the really punishing beauty ideals that were around for so long until they at least broke open the very narrow definitions of what beautiful was and 
now you see way more sort of diverse representations of women in in the beauty industry as a consequence, which is a massive achievement. But there are lots of brands, lots of them are made by women and invented by women because they are, I suppose, closest and they're often operating out of their own experience, but they're often very, very, very close to the audience because they are the audience. And so they can see where the category is getting it wrong and they step in and they say, well, actually, there's a whole there's a way to look at this, which is through a female lens. And this is what the market would look like if women were in charge of it. And they are biting chunks out of those bigger traditional brands, which are, you know, they do find it hard to change. I love it. Let me wrap up with this. It's really hard to interview people who've studied a space for so long and give them a new question. Mm -hmm. And it's even harder to give a new question to people who've done that and have written three books. Because you just got bits, like a comedian, you got bits that you can tap into. <laughs> so I have a feeling that my last few questions tapped in some of, into some of those bits. Did you hear yourself say anything new today? This is a question that I like to end a lot of my qual research interviews with, but did you hear yourself say anything new today? Yeah. Interestingly, you're one of the only people who's asked us about the audience. Most of the time, people ask us about either ourselves or what we're doing with the book, or what they can do with their business. But it is so rare that people actually want to know about the audience and want to know about women and want to know about how you talk to women. Yeah. And also ask about the expertise of teasing out what it is that you you know that you need to get out of in qualitative research, how you get to that insight. I mean, that's that's what we do. What we we don't write, but and we do write books. But that's not what that's not what we do for a living. Our expertise is helping clients get new thoughts and ideas and understanding of women's. And that's what you you know, as Phil says, that's what you've asked us about. All right. My question wasn't about me. It was about you. But something to do with how research feels, right? Is what? Yeah. Yeah. And and the research is what we love doing. You know, this is the thing is that we, you know, this is when we get a research, you know, we're like, ooh, you know, get really excited about it. So talking about it's great. Well, I love it. Awesome. Well, Jane Cunningham and Philippa Roberts, thank you so much for joining me here today. I am still working my way through brand splaining, but you hooked me with the first few chapters in a way that I mentioned before. Uh, I was like, oh, I can relate to this. And then I was like, that's not the point. Keep reading, keep reading. And honestly, you've got to read through the difficult parts, especially if you don't identify as the person being talked about. If you know, does that make, I don't know, if you're a dude and you're listening to conversations and you identify as like a heterosexual dude, heteronormative dude, I don't even have all the language. Just you don't have to throw yourself into all the conversations about it. Just listen. It's going to be difficult. And that's just the way that change is. It's going to feel uncomfortable. Um, if people want to find out more about the both of you and your research company, PLH, where is the best place for them to look? Oh, well, we've, we've got a website and, yeah, just can ring us up. What's the URL? <laughs> it's plhresearch.com. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for joining me here on Sweated today. Best wishes with all the research that you're going to do in the future and all the books you're going to write in the future and may you change the world. Thank, Thank you. you. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead. Sweathead.